3: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only Paul Anker. Paul, good to have you on the podcast.
4: Bob, it's great to be on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this.
3: Okay, you have a new album, Making Memories, just came out. What motivates you to make an
4: album at this late date? Pretty much the same when I was a kid, when I had to do three of them because I love writing. I love what I'm doing. Uh, I never stop. I don't have a rear view mirror. Uh, When I keep writing as I've been doing, I want to get it out there. Certainly times are not what they used to be, but you know, with COVID I'm locked up. The reality sets in that what are you going to do with yourself? So now you're gifted with writing and you say, I'm going to sit down and write. It's what I love to do. So you write and you write. And then when you're done with about 30 songs, You say, uh, well, I like what I'm hearing. Let's make some choices, and let's just get it out there. So it's an ongoing process, Bob, for me. I never stop writing, and age means nothing to me. You know, they throw dirt on you if you stand still. I'm just uh, doing what I do. I have a tour going out, but the album was very important this year, and we're producing a documentary. Uh, We're starting on that in a couple of months. Okay. Needless to say,
3: the business is completely different from when you started in it 60-plus years ago. Yeah. And in addition, in the last 20 years, it's changed for everybody. So first, you you write the songs. Who paid to make the record?
4: Well, I paid for most of it because I really didn't have an outlet yet. Then I have a deal with Primary Wave. Primary Wave are my partners in uh, publishing, copyrights, etc. And I said, let me give him a first crack. So I called Larry Mistel. I love Larry. He's doing a great job over there with his team. And I said, here's what I got. You know, I had my buddy Irv off. We talked about it. And we talked about where we'd want to go with it. And I said, let's go to Larry. You know, he's in that business. We went. They loved what they heard. Gave me some money back. Not all of it, (laughs) such as the record business. And uh, that was that. How much money did it cost to make the record? cost me about $190,000. Okay, so this is
3: an old-school budget. This is not done on the cheap. So you write the songs. How do you then go about actually making the record, especially during COVID?
4: Well, the process with the new technology is, you know, kind of the same in that the technology dictates, you know, I'll do most of it in my studio here at the house. I'll ship uh, some of the files over to uh, guitar players and drummers. The big question was, what do we do when we want strings and orchestra, etc.? We find out that in Budapest, Hungary, they have a symphonic orchestra that meets five times a week. And if you want music done, you just plug it in, and they'll give you what you want from Budapest. So we shipped all the arrangements over. We uh, had great talk with the conductor. They did everything from Hungary.
3: Wow, that's really amazing. Were you supervising everything or did you have a producer?
4: No, listen, I, I have a team. I have a team of people. i got good arrangers, good engineers. We, we're, it's a team effort. Uh, you know, Success has many fathers, Bob, as you know. And we sat down and looked at everything. And uh, I said, okay, take it. You guys give them a call. See what you want, what we want where. And the team just uh, dictated everything. I, I produced it all myself with them, with them. Okay, now in the old days, yeah. even in the somewhat recent
3: days, to cut basics, everybody would get together in a big studio. On this album, did everybody ever just get together like that?
4: No, we didn't go near a big studio. We, we couldn't with COVID. Even when it was proposed, we didn't want to take the chance. I thought that, well, why? We don't have to as long as we can go to Budapest. And if I need a guitar player over here, great. Keyboards are all done here, Great. Uh, JR, our drummer, he's at home. And like myself, uh, many people you know ship everything over to him, and he does it. So we don't all meet unless we have to.
3: Okay. And do you have a studio in the house so you
4: can cut your parts? I have a studio in the house. Uh, we have the technology here to uh, put down a core, put down a base of everything. Um, pretty simple. I mean, the last time I was in a studio with a full orchestra was with um, when I was doing Rock Swings, you know, I wanted it to be very uh, authentic. It was career-threatening. <laughs> so I wanted to get the best of everything. We went to Capitol. We used all the best mics we could get to get the sound, best orchestra, and put all our money in being in a studio. But that's the last time I've been in a studio. Okay.
3: Are you yourself technologically savvy, or are you more of a, you know, you know, there are people who are whizzes on their iPhone, whizzes in the studio, and other people are more conceptual. How about yourself?
4: Uh I'm not a multiple whiz expert. <laughs> I'm a whiz in maybe one or two things. I have an understanding of what it is. I don't really want to do it, Bob. I want to sit home. You know, I'm at a keyboard all day and you know I'm you know, I do everything I used to on a typewriter because I was going to be a journalist. But more than that, I'm not interested in doing, you know, I pay people that know what they're doing. They're on it day to day. And I have really no interest to do that whatsoever. I, I'm not even a prisoner to my phone. You know, people text me. You may hear from me three or four days later. I don't jump to it because if it's an emergency, they find you. And other than that, no, I don't want to be a prisoner to that stuff.
3: So now that the album is done and out, what are your expectations?
4: None. Uh, the way the business is today, you know, look, I, I'm playing on 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 house money. Uh, at this age and everything I've been through in this business, I don't sit there and chew my nails off. I'm not chewing my nails, but I'm my number one, number three. I have enough friends and young artists that I talk to that they can't sleep at night. Not interested. What I'm interested in, it's all about the music. You put it out there, whatever happens, you know, I've got my core following, However they respond, it sets you up for the tour. It lets you know you're still running. You got a historical moment, whether it's with Olivia Newton-John because of this TikTok, uh, Buble and uh, Bucelli, that's enough for me. Now, whatever happens to it happens. But outside of this box of show business, I don't live with expectations. I think it's a dangerous mindset to be in. Have you
3: always been that way or you've learned that over time?
4: I've learned most of it over time. In the beginning, when I left home with 100 bucks and, you know, at 15 and a few songs in my pocket, you know, I had the dream. I had the expectations. I bought into all of that stuff, live, breathe, rock and roll. And then I realized that everybody that I was dealing with, everyone around me, they weren't sophisticated. You know, none of us, most people in our industry, they're not sophisticated. They get lucky with something. And then they start crawling along this journey, trying to deal with the success and hoping that ultimately down the road they get some wisdom has to deal with it. But that ended for me maybe twenty years in, where I just said, no more expectations. I'm done with that. Okay, staying on the album just for a few more
3: minutes. Sure. The opening track, Fool for Love. Yes. If it didn't have your name on it, mm. it would fit right in on Sirius's Yacht Rock channel. It sounds very rock and it's very good. Can you tell me the story on that record on that track?
4: Yeah, I, I- I purposely on a couple of the tracks just, you know, I wanted to sound different, not that it was tough, but I have a songwriter's voice and then I've got, you know, an eclectic kind of way I sing different things. I wanted to make it very rock. That and Ariana, there's a few on there that uh, I'd already done all of that pop kind of sounding stuff. And the way that I wrote it and the way that I heard it, you know, I wanted to surround it with that kind of rock attitude, which, you know, I did, you know, years ago and I've been a fan of it. And I purposely just said, I'm not going to do the typical kind of anchor ballad approach to those. And it all came easy. So we laid it down, felt good. And even the sound, you know, the way that I was singing it, I felt that uh, that really fit. was indigenous to the song. Okay. There's also a track, Power
3: to the People, which seems somewhat political, although it doesn't really take a side. Uh, will you take a stand politically, or is that too dangerous? Why did you cut that track?
4: Good question. I um, I've always shunned from getting myself out there politically because you're going to lose half or more. Um, I've just, and, and furthermore, I would never step down. <laughs> so the politics and what I've seen in politics, very dangerous game. But. I wanted to write about it. There's three tracks on there where I was very, you know, moved and emotional about the fact that where we are right now in the world, where we are in this country, uh, I wanted to make my statement. Thus, crazy world, uh, if everyone could sing one song and power to the people. Now, if you go back maybe two years on one of your columns, uh, you've obviously done so much great stuff that we all love for the most part. You had a you had a, um, a column about uh, the state of the country. You, there are words that you used, etc. Well, if you listen to that again, there's about four instances in there where I lifted, where I was moved, where I used. Wow! And if, I, and if you listen to it, you're gonna you'll go find the piece you said. Uh, people got the power. Blah, blah, blah. The power, dee, da, 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 da. Uh, voice, a voice is, a voice is just a voice unless it's heard. There's about four times in then you, that you moved me, and I used it in the song. Now don't get Irving to come after me for royalties. You know, you're open game for all of us. But I used, I used a lot of your stuff. That's great. It's great to be
3: the inspiration. Let's talk about the writing process. Sure. You say you're a writer. How do you do it? Do you sit down at the piano at 10 a.m. or you wait to get inspired? How does it come together?
4: Well, all of us that write, um, we're kind of the same, but we're different. I think for me, the way I wrote in the 50s, where it all started, I wrote all the time, had 100 bucks a month, and I sat in a room that the record company locked me away. I had to give them you know, three albums a year or more. And that process was just right, 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 live, rock, and roll. Through the years, what's happened is, depending on how I'm motivated to what, uh, so you take something like The Longest Day, which I wrote for the film The Longest Day. You know, that was a lot way out of my bailiwick in terms of the film historical day in our country. You know, I'm with Daryl Zanuck, and I'm at lunch with this guy, and I'm saying, God, you know, thank you for having me in this film. I'm 20, et cetera. I'm saying, who, who... Who do, who's doing the music? He says, no music, no love story. It's a documentary-type film. Okay. I go home. I got the melody in my head. I got it half finished on the way home on the airplane. I went in the studio after maybe about two weeks refining it and doing what I want. I make a demo. I send it to him. He gets back to me in two weeks says, there will be music. Now, I'm, <laughs> off, I'm off point. But it just shows you when No No, no, that, that's totally on point. You're inspired that, and you're literally writing it right away while you're inspired. Right. So the point is when I get inspired like that, you sit down. I like to do it at night because there's no distractions. Uh, I like to sit down when I really feel I'm in a good kind of frame of mind. Uh, I don't like to force anything because as you evolve as a craftsman, which many of us are, uh, you know, good becomes the enemy of great. And especially today where everybody does it, everybody writes, everybody sings, everybody, everybody. But to get it to where you want it to be, I need to be totally alone. I need to be totally in a great frame of mind without any baggage and you write away. And you just hope, you hope you get it to the place where you want it, where you like it. You know, if it's something like she's a lady you know, I knew I had to write for Jones because we were buddies. I flew to England, did his TV show. And he said, write me a write me a song because I've never been number one in in the United States, which he wasn't. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. So I jumped on TWA flying home. And, you know, when we're on planes, there's not paper around. When it moves you, you know, you need paper. You need something. On the back of a menu, I wrote She's a Lady. I put the words down first, which... Uh, is not part of the regular process. You usually like to get the structure and the note, and the word is as good as the note under it. So with with She's a Lady, I knocked that off in just uh, maybe a couple of days because I was inspired by this guy. You know, it's all about sexuality. I really put myself in his place. It was no different than Buddy Holly. He was my friend. We were, we were bus mates. We were going to start a music company together. And he said, Paul, you know, I'm getting fleeced by my manager. I want to change my style. He said, you know, write me something. I want strings. I want to do what you're doing. And I wrote It Doesn't Matter Anymore on a ukulele. And the process was always the same, inspiration. Now, when you're writing for yourself, like this album, you know, love is the strongest emotion, and it's what I've always dealt in. That's a different thing because I'm kind of, I know the parameters. I know pretty much what I want to do how I should be doing it, and I just sit and write and write. I continue to write even when I get down to doing the vocal because once that comes together, if there's a line or a rhyme or an attitude line, I'll rewrite it, and I'll keep rewriting till I get what I want. So it's just eclectic. It's all over as to the approach.
3: Now, you say you're writing all the time. Yeah. Let's just talk in the last seven days. Have you written in the last seven days?
4: I started uh, one song in the last seven days, and then I've been working with a young rapper-type pop singer who's 16, working with him. So I put a lot of energy into that. And uh, other than that, I'm on the phone from 6 in the morning with radio all over the country, you know, promoting the record company want me to talk to these guys, which is great, and that eats up my time. So I'm dedicated to that, and I'm dedicated to sitting here through boxes and boxes of photos and film that go back 60 years trying to get ready for what's going to go into this documentary.
3: Okay. Let's talk a little deeper on the writing process. Mm -hmm. We covered when you're rawly inspired with Buddy Holly and uh, Tom Jones, etc., But are there other days where you'll literally just say, I want to write, I'm sitting down in front of the piano, I got nothing?
4: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, More so, let's say, on the second half of my writing life, um, where I'm much more of a critic to myself, and there's other things around you in your life, you know, which will go nameless for the moment— Uh, yes, you're absolutely effective. And I don't force it. I just don't force right. There's times I've sat there for an hour and I said it's just not happening. It's just not happening. Yes, the answer is yes. Well, tell me
3: about when it is happening.
4: Well, when it is happening, you there's a certain feeling that you get. You're just, you know, you're walking around the house, you're driving, you're out, you're doing, you can get this sense because you're coming up with lines and you're writing them down and you're recording them into your phone. You got this vibe happening where it's that, that once in a what, where you go, wow, I got to get the piano. It's happening. And you sit down and it flows and flows. And you just keep writing, keep writing, keep melody lines going, getting your structure. And it's just one of those moments that, you know, you're given a gift, I feel. And I think that for, for a lot of guys, you know, Bert Backrack, he's a dear buddy of mine. I talk to Bert, you know, many times a week. He's still writing. You know, we talk about when he's moved, as I am, and when he's not. Well, right now, last week, he wasn't. So we we understand the process of when we get excited about something that we internally hear or a lyric that's turning us on, that it's time to sit down and nail it, but don't force it. You just can't force it. You know, we're not building a house that has to be done by October. Let's say you're really hot. You say, man,
3: I'm in the mood. Yeah, do you find that you almost have to disconnect because otherwise you're self-conscious and you go off the rails? Say that again? Well, I guess what I'm saying, I'm talking about writing. Sometimes I'll write something and I go, I'll realize, I go, whoa, this is really good. And if I realize it's really good, it's hard to stay that good. Whereas other times, if I just stay in the zone, don't worry about reaction and just let it flow, it's easier to stay on point with the great stuff.
4: Wow. Wow. How do I answer that? That's, um, no, if if I'm really on it and and I'm, you know, throwing the dice with it because it's so good and reaching out and trying to do it, I just stay there. I get discipline when I get the sense that I've kind of done. Well, you know the writing process. I mean, when I went to school, I was typing 70 words a minute. I was going to be a journalist as a cub, re- cub reporter. You know, you're sitting there for a minute. You don't know how to start the piece. You don't Mm -hmm. know what that first line is, you know? And you you get hung up. It's a very lonely existence when you're all by yourself there and you're looking at it and waiting for it. But when it's flowing, you you just jump right on. You keep going with it. I'm not afraid of it in in either area, not at all. Okay. So how do you, with so much experience and so
3: much success, separate good from great?
4: (laughs) Yeah, tough. It's tough. um, You're really hard on yourself. Um, For the most part, when you're really done with it, uh, you can separate it. Uh, Functional, uh, has some appeal. Is it great? You know, none of us have that magic wand in the music business. We don't know. Nobody sits there and says, this is number one, this is this, this is this. But you know within the scope of what you're capable of that you've written something that's just not okay. You know, because I, I hate just being good because I think that you've got to uh, really go beyond that, way beyond this. Too much of that around today in music. There's just too much, let alone the fact you don't know where you're going to go with it. It's, it's just a very tough landscape to deal on.
3: Okay, let's dive a little deeper. You start on the piano. Yeah. So to what degree will that be locked? And will it be locked before you do the lyrics? Or will the will the music sometimes change as you're writing the lyrics or when the lyrics are even finished?
4: All of that. I think first, once I get the title or the concept of the song, which will set in motion the melody bass, uh, it all morphs. Out of that, you know, if, if I'm adding on a structure five more words, I've got to change the melody under it. So it's all back and forth between the two, unless I really have a melody that I know is a lock. It's like my way. That was a lock. There was no way I could change that melody. Not, not a bit. But the way the lyric fl- came out of me at, you know, one in the morning, you know, I I'd sat with that melody f- for a long time and it was only... Because I'm in Florida, I'm at the Fountain Blue. Frank Sinatra was my guy, my mentor. I hung with him, Sammy. Don't forget Dean Martin, great singer, great guy. And these were my guys. And all through the years, I hung with them from Vegas. Sinatra would say, when are you going to write me a song? When are you going to write me a song, kid? Well, I was intimidated. I mean, I couldn't give him puppy love or lonely boy. He would have thrown a chair at me. It was in Florida when he said, I'm retiring from show business. I'm quitting. He said, I'm going to do one more album. One more album, and I'm out of here, and I'm going to do it with Don Costa. Well, Don Costa was my producer. I introduced him to Frank in the 60s, and they did a great album called Sinatra and Strings. And um, after dinner, I sat there, and I just said, you're you're really quitting? I'm done. He said, you know, the FBI is all over me. The Rat Pack's over. But I got to do one more album for the company. I go back to New York. And I'm sitting there at my typewriter. It's one in the morning, thunderstorm outside. And I'm going, quitting showbiz, I got to write something. And I got right off the head, I got, and now the end is near, metaphorically, the final curtain. And I started writing it as if he were sitting in the chair because there's stuff in there I'd never normally write, ate it up and spit it out, all part of what he was about. So by five in the morning, I'd finished this thing and it just came and came out and came out, little refinement. But that was the one moment that I could say, I don't know where the hell it came from. I don't know how every word, every verse locked in like that. I, I did a demo the next day. I uh, flew out to Vegas. I called him. I said, "Sir, I got the song." Blah 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 blah. He said, "Come on out." I took it to him in his dressing room. He was finishing up at Caesar's Palace, you know. And he wasn't a guy. Oh, I love him, I loved, and he did. But, you know, he's tr- always played cool. I love it, kid. I'm going to do it. So great. Two months later, I get a call. I'm in my apartment in New York. He's in a studio with Don at, uh, I think, Sunset Sound, one of those places. And uh, the operator said, Mr. Sinatra calling. Okay. I pick up the phone. He says, kid, listen to this. And he takes the phone. He puts it next to one of those big speakers. And I heard my way for the first time. And I started crying. I mean, I just said, shit, this is unreal. I finally got Sinatra to do one of my songs. And then a couple of years later, he decided to come back. And he calls up and says, kid, I'm coming back. Write me another song. So I gave him, let me try again. (laughs) And he introduced it. Jerry Weintraub called, he said, because he was my other buddy. He says, he's going to do it and introduce it at Madison Square Garden, Polly. I said, oh, God, you're killing me. Bring it on. And that was a very, those moments, writing for him, I've never had that kind of experience.
3: Did you ever write something for somebody and they said no?
4: Yeah. Yeah, I have. I've had a couple of, uh, yeah, the answers, (laughs) yes. (laughs) And that's okay. You know, I've had, uh, I don't know, something with a fifth dimension, because I liked the group. I finally got one on there, but they turned me down twice. Um, I think I sent something to Presley, but he finally did my way. Um, Michael Buble. I gave Michael a couple of new songs, and uh, it wasn't working. And that's okay. You know, that. look, that's so okay. As a writer, when you're writing like that, you just write and whatever it is, a great song, ultimately something's going to happen. Now, I'm looking at this whole TikTok thing. I didn't know what it was. I had no idea until these kids showed up at my door. I have this 16-year-old son, and these girls start singing this, put your head on my shoulder, and I don't know why. And they said, TikTok, TikTok. I said, what is TikTok? Well, of course, did my homework, got involved. I'm listening. I'm watching. I'm saying, I don't believe this. I wrote it at 17, and who the hell knew that with TikTok, and none of us knew where this business was going. Who would have envisioned this? You know, all we ever saw was the rat pack. Then when I you know, I talked to Normie Weiss and Sid Bernstein, who were my agents, when I was living in Europe and I'd come home and say, There's these Beatles, these Beatles. And they go, What do you mean, Beatles? What Beatles? I said, You got they're amazing. And I but and I was knocking these guys to go bring them to the States. Now I think VJ Records tried to put something else, that bombed. Right. And finally Normie, he goes over. Because I told them to, and they bring them back in 64. And the point is, till the Beatles came and opened everything up, you know, Madison Avenue didn't like us kids. The parents didn't like us kids. We're schlepping around the country on a bus, making $200 a week, which we loved. But till the Beatles got here, then it started opening up, and Hendrix, and you know the rest of the story. But, you know, we were back then, we are just these little pioneers.
3: Okay, let's talk about the Beatles. Yeah. When did when did you first experience the Beatles?
4: Well, I had off point a little. I I toured in Europe from age 17 on. I'm going everywhere and I'm loving it, you know. I'm a kid out of Canada, New York, and all of a sudden I'm introduced to the world. So I'm over in in Europe a lot and I'm performing them a lot. I'm one of the first, you know, kids rock and roll artists, whatever pop going to Japan, I'm going to Paris, I'm going to Italy. I'm in Paris. I'm in Paris. I get married in Paris. And I go to the theater where I started as a kid, the Olympia Theater, to see one of my friends who was top of the bill for a man called Bruno Cocatrix, who was a wonderful guy, a great promoter, and he was my guy in France. Well, I walk in and I see the undercard, the Beatles. I don't know, the Beatles. <laughs> I'm trying to say What's what's that what are they doing with Gilbert? These kids aren't French. And I see the hair and I see everything. I said, Well this is gonna be interesting. So I'm sitting there, ladies and gentlemen, please say hello to the Beatles. <laughs> they didn't know who the hell they were either. And these kids come on, and they're my age, and they start, and I'm going, God damn, this is interesting. This is good, right? So I go backstage, Bruno takes me back. I'll send you some pictures that we took together. And I meet these guys. And they say, hey, Paul, how are you? And we love what you're doing. And, uh, you know, you write your own stuff. And we want to write our own stuff. And you produce them and you're public. And I'm rapping with these guys. And I really like them. I go to London. We meet up again. Well, I realize in seeing them that there's something else coming there's not a huge placement for them with me because I'm writing these teenage songs. I'm not a guitarist. I'm not influencing them on guitar. They're all talking about Chuck Berry. They're talking about Fats Domino, you know, all all the the American acts, the blues. But they're looking at me with a respect of, well, we hear those violins, but, you know, we're not there. But they're, they're really gracious. They're really gracious. So I go home after meeting them and seeing them on a few occasions. And that's when I told Normie and Sid Bernstein, I brought some records, pictures, et cetera, And they're looking at me, you know, they're scratching their head because, you know, pop music back then it was in its infancy stage. It was still growing. There was like two agencies. You had three or four cities that were, were making records. I mean, I didn't know where to go when I left Canada. I, I went to New York because it was the closest to Canada. I had a feel for it. You know, I won a contest collecting soup wrappers. So that's how I got to New York. And I know that it's it's the center of the music. So with it all just starting out like that, when I'd go to England, they didn't have anybody in the charts. We, we dominated. There wasn't one English act. You had a guy named Tommy Steele. The Beatles hadn't really hit yet. And then we dominated. Well, of course, what they did, they took it, made it better. We know that story. And they had their own life going. But till then, there was no way that we were an an accepted entity other than our fans. Nobody, and you know, certain guys in radio, you know, we were, some of us, we white rock and roll. You know, when I traveled, in some cases, I was the only white kid on a bus and they were my buddies. And I'm going to the South for the first time, but the black experience was motivating me in Canada. And when you look at the history of the music in this country, it's always the black experience that is dominating and really happening with some legs to it. And that's what I experienced then. And to watch it, the way it motivated all the English, and to watch how it grew here, and how I was pretty much growing up with that music and with these fellow artists that were my buddies. Okay, let's do a little
3: fill-in. You talk about writing the song for Buddy Holly. Yeah. Did you know that Linda Ronstadt was cutting it, or it was only when it came out and then ultimately a huge success?
4: I had no idea she was uh, going to sing it. I might have been informed in terms of uh, issuing a license. Uh, wow, what a record. What a great singer. What a natural, what a great job she did with that song. There's been many covers on that song. But I will tell you, outside of Buddies, that's my favorite rendition of It Doesn't Matter Anymore, of Linda Ronstadt. Great. Let's go back to the beginning. So,
3: where exactly did you grow up in Canada?
4: Uh, I was born in Ottawa, Canada, which is in the east. It's, uh, you know, f- quite a few miles from Toronto. It's uh, near Montreal, which was a drive from there. 150,000 people and the capital of Canada.
3: So, you grew up in Ottawa
4: too? I grew up in Ottawa. I started, uh, went to school till I was in grade 10 for the second time and I realized I got to get out of here and I took a course in uh, because of journalism of shorthand and typewriting and uh, while growing up you know when television went on at five in the afternoon and off at ten none of these talent shows so I was this kid thrown out of shorthand I took music I was a big big fan of all the music my mom worked out at Sears uh, uh, Roebuck And she'd give me money to go buy my records. And that's all I wanted to do. One day it just clicked that I wanted to write and I wanted to sing. I started a group called the Bobby Soxers. Uh, We would hitchhike, do local stuff, 30 bucks. I got rid of the group because I knew that wasn't going to work. And I was a fan of all the music stuff. So while growing up and going to school, uh, music was all I wanted to do. I wanted to get the hell out of there and go wherever I could make a record. Now I did uh, prior to getting my deal in uh, New York, I uh, came out to Los Angeles on a vacation. Whoa, 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 let's oh. not go, let's hold that for a second. Okay, you're holding it.
3: Why did you have to go to grade 10 twice?
4: Because I didn't like school. <laughs> I dad was not doing well. I was just, it was sports and music, and they weren't going to pass me, and that was Okay. <laughs> And what did your parents say about having to do it twice? Well, we all know what parents are like. Yeah, they were not, they weren't happy. They're dealing with this kid and wherever he can sing, 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 no homework, no homework, no homework. They weren't happy. You know, my dad was, you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a journalist. And what happened? Well, dad, I'm not interested. I want to write. I want to sing. I want to hitchhike and sing at the universe. Not happy. In fact, I went to juvenile court. Not many people know. I was so gung-ho about singing and doing. My mother had an Austin Healy. May she rest in peace. I lost her at 18. And I would practice in the driveway because there was a, a Canada. You know, you've got Ontario and a river in the middle and then you got Quebec. And the only place you could go to get drinks and have a nightlife was in Quebec and all the clubs were there. And I heard about this club, the Glen Lee Club, where you'd go amateur contest and they throw money and you can make about 20 bucks. And I wanted to go over there and put the mileage in because, you know, none of these guys that we see today made it like that. It's all, you got to put the mileage in. So I started practicing with the Austin Healy. And then I knew the, the uh, Friday night was the big night and I backed the car out. My mom was asleep because of her her diabetes and uh, I started driving and I go over this bridge called the Champlain bridge (laughs) And I'm driving this Austin, and it's a gear shift, right? And I'm struggling with the gear shift. And I get over there and I park the car. I go in, I had a guitar, I used to do an Elvis Presley uh, imitation, uh, Johnny Ray song, uh, Bill Haley in the Comets. And I win the contest and I get about 20 bucks. And I jump back in the car, it's a major, major snowstorm, like only Canada gets. And I'm driving home over this Champlain Bridge. And I'm trying to get the goddamn gear up into second and third. And the car starts smoking. And I hear the parts in the hood flying out and hitting the hood. And I'm leaving half the car behind me. And there was an exit off the bridge. And I get off the exit. And I go down to what was Lover's Lane. There was a Chinese restaurant. And all the kids would go park there. Well, I'm a real kid. I'm like 14. And I'm sitting there. I'm saying, shit, what, what am I going to do here? And I see behind me the red beacon and a police pull up, and they bang on the window. Kid, what are you? Blah, 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 blah. Where's your parent? Blah, 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 blah. They leave the car. They take me home. They wake up my mother. Poor woman comes to the door. He's got these huge Mounties. You know, I'm like about five three at that point. Is this your son? This your... She was just so upset. My dad was livid, and I found myself in court. He took me to juvenile court in front of a judge. They were going to send me to a um, uh, reform school. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. I won't do it again. But that was a turning point for me because it didn't curtail me in any way. I still had my bad habits and I still wanted to write and be in the business. Okay. What'd your father do for a living? My dad owned a restaurant. He had the restaurant in town. It was a You know, for Ottawa, it was a very classy place, uh, American-Canadian type cuisine. And he owned this restaurant till it burnt down. Usually, restaurants are working 24-7 and the kids are
3: working in the restaurant. What was it like in your family?
4: Exactly what you said. My (laughs) dad would not get home till 2 in the morning, worked his ass off. I mean, I remember the first little house we had. You know, one bathroom, scuffling to make it. It evolves. We move out to the west out of town. I a couple of years, I forget what age, maybe 14. I'm working in the kitchen. I'm peeling potatoes. I'm doing the carrots. I'm doing the garbage. And I'm going, more reason to get the hell out of here. I did not want to be in the restaurant business. And he was just watching over me. And you know, trying to figure out every move, how to handle it. You know, he said, "Really, is this what you want to do?" And you know, why, 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 why? But I didn't want to be in the restaurant business. And this poor guy was busting his ass till one, two in the morning every night. Till you know, he got that call at three in the morning. I'll never forget. The place is on fire. It was on fire, and it just broke his heart. It broke his heart. I mean, thank God. A couple of years later, with my number one record, he came and he worked with me. Bought my mom a home like she never had, and then you know, she died like a year later. I just gave it all back to them, right out of the first check.
3: Okay. Now were your parents born in Canada or did they come from the old country, as we say?
4: Their parents, old country. Uh my parents in uh in Ottawa, yeah. He he was one of eleven children. And how many kids in the family? My sister, my brother. And where where are you in the hierarchy? Hello, I'm the boss. I'm the big guy and uh, put him through school, sent my uh, sister to finishing school in Switzerland, sent my brother, and uh, I'm the big brother. Okay. So what kind of kid are you growing up? <laughs> I, wish I'd, I wish I I wish knew.
3: <laughs> you know, I mean, did you have a lot of friends? Were you an outsider? Were you the leader of the pack? Were you
4: always a limit tester? I was social. I uh, wasn't the leader of the pack. I uh, was very confident in terms of what I wanted to do. Uh, the student situation, we know. Uh, I was kind of at some at some point not in the pack because with the music and then running around singing, you know, they were looking at me, and my friends, saying, you know, where I'd sit down at the piano and play for them. You know, they loved it, but I wasn't really a part of them. You know, I was not successful with girls, Uh, you know, I was still growing and I was a goalie in in, uh, hockey. I was very active in sports, but because of my size, I just knew that I wasn't getting the girls and I wasn't going to be professional or do anything in school. I was this little kid, was very precocious. And, um, you know, I just, I was a loner other than being social when I had to on the weekends. I was just a determined kid. Okay, how'd you, so tell us the story about being in L.A. So I had an uncle uh, living out here, and uh, they wanted me to come out and visit. My dad said, you know, you should go out, go on your vacation and see California, blah, blah, blah. And So I flew out, and um, still music, still music for me. So I'm in his apartment, and but I'm going down to this Wallach's Music Center. Wallach's Music Music City, the, right. Music City, right. And I'm in the booth, and I'm listening. And... There's one song on the radio I loved called Stranded in the Jungle. Let me tell if you remember, by the who? Do you remember?
3: The yes, cadets. I do.
4: The Cadets, right? Right, okay. right, right. Okay. So now I'm loving this song. And I got the vinyl and I'm playing at the apartment, driving them nuts. And in the interim, I got two book reports. I got to prepare for school when I go back in the fall. So there's a, there was a town uh, called Wild de Biesfontein. And it's it's the premise of the book, and it was written by our uh, ex governor general, so it's called Prester John. So I said, "Wow, what an interesting, interesting sounding word." So I start this song, Blah, wild to be spontaneous, Blah, wild to be spontaneous, where love is so splendor and blah, blah. and I write this song. When I look on the label, the cadet stranded in the jungle, it says uh, uh, Modern Records, Cover City. And it was like a few miles from my uncle. So I said, I said to my uncle, look, will you drop me off at this <laughs> place or I'm going to hitchhike. He's all so he said, OK, I'll take you. So he drops me off. And I walk. It was a storefront. I mean, you might as well have been at uh, Harry's uh, uh, confectioner. And I walk in, and everybody's just sitting around, the Bahari brothers, Saul, and I forget his brother's name, the sister, and they're like waiting for something. <laughs> So I walk in. Hi, my name's Paul Anke. Like how you do, kid? What do you want? Blah, blah, blah. I got this song. So Saul says, sing it. <laughs> so I start singing in the lobby. <laughs> ain't like that anymore. Blah, <laughs> wild, these fun Well, I don't know if they were like in shock or if there was a, sh- a shortage of talent. And a guy says to me, he says, well, how'd you get here? And my uncle, da, da, find?' He says, how did you find us? I says, you're on a record label, the cadets. I said, I love that song. He says, wow. Well, he says, how would you like to record it in the garage back here and I'll get the cadets to sing with you? I go, this is, I'm 14, Bob. I'm 14, right? I go, you're kidding. He says, no, no. Come, he says, come on back. In three days, we're going to do this song. Now, I am, I am just going nuts with this. Now, I come back. I walk in the room. They introduce me to this guy named Ernie Freeman. Hello, Ernie. He was just starting out. How you doing? Here, I did this arrangement. Say hello to the cadets. Cadets. These were my idols for a month. They said, now you stand over here, blah, 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 blah. And I record the song. The other side was a record uh, song called I Confess. Now I'm in the process. Now, well, we're going to get it to the hound dog in Buffalo. We're going to get it to the guy in Chicago, blah, blah, blah. And they released the record. That was a failure. 14, I don't know what it sold, 200 records, 300 records, <laughs> but it got a little noise in Canada where I was from for obvious reasons. And this kid out of Ottawa, and they played it up there. That was my first taste and my first recording with the Bahari Brothers, Modern Records and the Cadets, Blah, Wild, the Beast thing
3: Okay, so you go back to Ottawa, what's your next step?
4: Going to school, Paul. You're going to school now. <laughs> so I go back, uh, grade 10. But now I got a little notoriety up there, right? Now I get a call from Norman Jewison, big director up in Canada, who remained a friend for years. And he's got this talent show. Well, Paul, we've got this record. I, we're going to get it on the charts here. Come on to Toronto. I go to Toronto. I sing the song, blah, Wild blah, And then somebody else called. Then that was it. And, you know, you have to understand, Canada, back in the 50s, we're in the shadow of the big giant down here. You know, we didn't dominate the way we do today. All these great talents out of Canada. There was no one. Giselle McKenzie, you know, great. So that was it. My career ended. But I said, uh, I got to do something. That's when I read about winning a contest for IJ Food Stores to New York. And I win and I go down, but I'm writing now. So now I got Diana. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Let's just go a little bit slower. Oh, okay. You have your
3: hit in quotation marks. That ends a little bit
4: slower about the talent contest, the writing in Diana. I got the taste. Blah, Blah, Wally, Fontaine. And I want to keep writing. Now I'm throwing out a shorthand class. I'm taking music. I sit down doing all the classical stuff. Then I... Drift off and start doing my own stuff. There's a girl, three three years older than I am. Now, back then, it was relevant. If you're older, the chick is older, and you're young, you're not getting a date. So I write this song. I'm so young, you're so old. I mean, no Shakespeare. How I felt. And I do it. I sit down, and now I've got some command of the piano, and I'm writing. So I start writing. Uh, Diana, tell me that you love me, and don't gamble with love. And I'm playing them. To my friends, we're at parties, and I'm playing it. But what am I going to do with it? So I went to a local station and made a demo record because I told that's what you're supposed to do. Then I said, I got to get to New York and play for somebody. Back then in the 50s, the Canadian groups, the crew cuts, the four lads, they were the covers for all the black songs. They were doing Earth Angel. All the black artists, whether it was Little Richard, whomever, you know, they were not allowed on white radio. That's what prevailed. So you had everybody whiteifying, whether it was Pat Boone, whether it was these groups in Canada, they'd come to my dad's restaurant. One of the groups, uh, when I was peeling potatoes in the back and I came out and my dad said, you know, my son writes and and they're looking at me like, please, let us finish dinner. So now (laughs) they said, well, you know, we're with this new label, ABC Paramount. And if you ever get to New York, Look them up and say, we sent you. I got that occasion when I left for uh, on an Easter vacation. I go down and- uh, You go a- down alone, not knowing anybody. Where are you going to stay? What my about uncle, all that? My, 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 <laughs> I had an uncle who was living down there. Uh, they they put me in a room at the President Hotel on I 45, 44th Street. And he's watching over me, but I want my own room. So I'm living- At the President Hotel, I got this, you know, one room and I'm looking out at New York and New York back then, as you know, that was it, man. That was it. And I'm walking the streets and doing and my uncle's watching over me, but I don't want to live with him. So now and I was only and I only had four days to do this. So I get an appointment at ABC Paramount and I walk. From the hotel up to, uh, down to 42nd. They had a building, the Paramount building. And I walk in, my jeans, a t shirt, appointment, see Mr. Costa. And I walk in. And he looks at me <laughs> like the Bahari brothers, but it's a year later. He says, Yes. I said, I'm from Canada. I've had da da da. And I got these songs. He says, Well, sit down and play them. And he was a guitar player. And I sit at the piano, and the walls are shaking because I'm a heavy-handed piano player. He says, where are your parents? I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said they're in Canada. <clears throat> he said, well, I want you to meet some people. I said, OK. So he gets Sam Clark, Erwin Garr, Larry Newton, and these guys walk in with the suits, and they're looking at me. He says, sing for them. So I start singing. They said, where are your parents? I said, they're <laughs> in Canada. What's with the parents? He said, uh, well, we want to sign a contract. and you're, you're, you're too young, but we want to record you. Oh, here I am again. The Bahari brothers all over, but no cadets, just these guys. So I called my dad. I said, dad, da-da, ba-ba, they're flying you down. My dad said, you sure? I said, yeah, just get on the plane. They want to sign me. They fly the parents down. We uh, sign the contract. I get 100 bucks a month to write. And uh, my parents go home in disbelief. And two days later, I got to get to Capitol Records on Broadway and 44. Two o'clock in the afternoon. But at night, I'm enjoying New York. Five to two, I wake up. I'm late. I'm supposed to be at the studio. Shit. And I wanted to fix Diana because at the end of the bridge, I go, I love you all oh, my heart. Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. It always bothered me because I, you know, uh oh, I mean, what's uh oh? So I said, God, I didn't fix it. So now I run down Broadway. I would get into Capitol. Now, in those days, the cool thing about it, unlike today, everybody had to know their parts. Now there's six great musicians looking at me. Costas rehearsed them, they know their parts. They put me in the booth. I think I know my parts. The engineer is in there, I forget his name. I'm looking at a tape machine that's a quarter of an inch thick and everything's going to go through that right onto that tape and we're going to get it done in 3 hours. They start and I'm in there. And we get to uh-oh uh-oh and I apologize to Don. He says, "It's all right. Leave it in." We like uh-oh. <laughs> so we finished the 3 songs. In the, yeah, in three hours, I say goodbye to the musicians. That was it. That was it. Then they do a vinyl. Back then, you do a vinyl. You ship it to the guys in radio. Within a week, you got a hit. Two months later, I'm on American Bandstand. And then a month later, I'm on Ed Sullivan that I used to watch in Canada. So in the span from May to September, my life Absolutely is upside down, changed. There's no more grade 10. And the American dream is just sitting there in my lap. And I couldn't believe it. The cool thing about the what I felt of the story is, what changed my life, prior to going to New York, the rock and roll show comes to Canada. They put all these guys together on the bus. And Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, they all came. And in the hockey arena, about 10 acts, and I had bought this new jacket with white sleeves and I was going to break in and get back and happen not signed my jacket. I find a way because I was a hockey player and I you know knew the way into the uh, backstage. And I go backstage and I get into Chuck Berry's dressing room. And Chuck is there, first time I met him, putting his guitar away. I said, oh, Mr. Berry, I'm Paul Anka and I'm a songwriter and I, and I love your music. And uh, I got this song called Diana. He says, sing it. So I sing him, Diana. He says the worst song I ever had. <laughs> Go back to school. It's in his book. He'll tell you. Worst song I ever heard. I said, really? <laughs> so I, you know, I looked at him, I oh, went okay, okay. And I wasn't dejected at all. As I'm leaving, this guy comes around the court named Irving Feld. Remember that name. He was responsible and a smart cat for all that early stuff. He was a very, him and his brother Izzy owned drug stores in Washington called Super Stores. But what they did, they used to rack records, pretty much all the black experience. And they would see what was selling. And he and Izzy would call up, book the act, put them all on a bus, whoever it was, 15, Clyde McFadder, the Platters, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how he started All of those big rock and roll tours. He says to me, what are you doing back here? I said, I don't know. I got a song and a He says, get out of here. I said, sir, you're going to hear from me one day. I said, remember my name, Paul Anka. He said, just go. You're not supposed Paul, I fade out, fade in. I get a call the following year. Guy calls my house. Is Paul Anka there? So my dad says, yeah, who's calling? He says, well, my name is Irving Feld. And I'm looking for Paul Anka. He's got this record, Diana, and it's huge. I want to book him. So my dad said, da, ba, 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 and Irving Feld. I said, I know who he is. I get on the phone. I said, Mr. Feld, Paul Anka, remember you threw me out of the auditorium. (laughs) So he says, oh, my God, da, da, yes, yes. He said, I want you on the tour. I said, great. Gives me 300 bucks. I'm with this guy. I'm underage, taking care of me. I'm living in Washington with him and his family because I'm this kid. And he said, wow, amazing story what's happened here. He said, you know, I want you to come back and do another tour because then after the tour had ended, I had You Are My Destiny. I said, look, first of all, you got me for 300 a week. You're a real smart guy. I said, I'm not coming back here unless you become my partner. He said, what? I said, I want to be in business with you. You're going to look after my career. He says, let me think about it. Called me back. He said, we're going to be partners. Come on back down. And Irving Feld, he was the key to my success. I learned more from him. You know, guys like Geffen and Weintraub, smart guys, they all knew Irv. And those are the guys, whether it's a Geffen or Weintraub, Irving, all those guys, the old school guys, that went through that experience back then, you'll never, ever see them again, ever. And that's what Feld was for me. He taught me so much from business, life, all that stuff. This guy raised me in Washington, D.C., till I left when I was 21, and I got married. Okay. You
3: have success. Yes. You're
4: on television. Yes. You're on the bus. Yes.
3: First, how do you cope with this emotionally? There are a lot of people the success happens, they get into substance abuse or they crack up. How do you stay on the rail?
4: Well, we had no drug problem back then. We got all we wanted. <laughs> but seriously, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, you know, it's a great 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 question to all of us. And I look at the kids today and we know those stories. Back then, because of my Canadian upbringing, Uh, because of Irving who watched over me and I'm trying to deal with the success and I'm trying to keep the nose clean. Now, when you see Frankie Lyman, may he rest, a great artist, you know, shooting up in the bathroom uh, and you know the end of the story and how it was really hurting his career uh, and many others that were into drugs and not being able to deal with what their commitment called them what they were supposed to do in terms of respect to what they were given. I just realized that I wanted to stay in control. Uh, I did not want to go there, but then, you know, it's, um, I was always curious about it. I went on drug raids with detectives in uh, New York that, that you know, I was the first kid to work the COPA and these detectives would come and see me and they'd say, do you want to go on a drug raid? I said, yeah. But it was just out of curiosity. But I never wanted to, nor would Irv allow me, be in those circles to where I'd ever get a taste of that. Now, you know, when I'm with the Everly Brothers, um, uh, Buddy Holly, we drank beer. Uh, Don was the only one we knew that really got into the heavy shit. Uh, But for the most part, and other than the beer, there's a group of us that would just never, ever get unstable. We we just didn't have it. Now, when you start working for the mob uh, at the COPA, you start, and then you go to Vegas, you're in this group of guys. They're twice your age. They're telling you to keep your nose clean. They're not going to put up with any shit. Even though the, the Rat Pack, I'm experiencing these guys drinking, doing, never saw any drugs. You had to keep your nose clean. You're doing two shows a night. You're trying to be a responsible artist. Uh, You're realizing that that's taboo. You're going to get yourself in trouble. And I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want to lose it. All of this shit was happening before I was 21, watching those that got in trouble. And you make a choice in life. I did not want to go there. I wasn't a drinker. I'm still not a heavy drinker today. I never smoked a cigarette. Have I done weed? Yeah, sure. Have I... Giving a little shot at cocaine? Yeah. What is it about? You're curious. But never crossing to lines to where you'd get destabilized. And Irv was like on my ass all the time. He traveled with me. He made sure I didn't get in any, any trouble. And I've been that been like that ever since. Been like that ever since.
3: Talk about, especially the wave that follows the British invasion. You have all these guitarists and other players who are, all they can do is play. And they feel their playing will help them with the opposite sex. Yeah. So you were an older teenager, but a young man. You go on the road in a bus with all these other guys. What were your sexual
4: love experiences? Couldn't get enough. It was a, who do I give the money back to? Uh, but you have to realize, you have to realize when you're on that bus at 17 and you're nowhere with what we're allowed today in terms of what sexuality was, what it represented, you couldn't bring them into hotels. You were always doing it on the sly. You were always aware of the fact that when you were getting to Pennsylvania, that you had to get Chuck Berry off the bus because he was wanted in eight states in between and ultimately went to jail at the end of the tour, you heard all the horror stories of the trouble that some of them got into. My experiences as a young kid, you know, I didn't really start getting into it till I landed in Europe where they were so ahead with sexuality. You know, my first major girlfriend out there was from England. Brought her over here, moved her over to the States, wouldn't let her go. So it was it was all European, and anything domestic, I had to be so careful with because you get in trouble. And we didn't want to get in trouble like, like Chuck. You know, listen, we love Chuck. We know his talent, but he loved the ladies. And there was a story every time you hit a city. And, you know, I'm a kid. I can't do what Chuck was doing or, you know, anybody else. I'm the youngest there. The Everleys, Buddy Hall. I mean, Buddy married the secretary at the, at the record company, and he was so elated. And, you know, we used to sit around and talk about, change your glasses, Buddy. Get re-. We were talking about chicks. But they were there. Obviously, were there. You know, it was it was this group of guys. You know, I had uh, had lunch with uh, Phil Everly, may he rest. And I took him in the valley here. He was starting to get ill. And we were reminiscing. And we hung like a pack. We are these pack of guys. And we went to, we are a little town up in Canada. And uh, every afternoon, what do we do with each other? Because all we had to do that night was sing one or two songs. And uh, we go to the movie theater. And there must have been six of us. And these guys, about 10 of these leather biker types, were sitting behind us. And I think they knew who we were. But they didn't like us. And they start tapping us in berating us in the theater, and we're getting nervous because we're outnumbered, and these guys, were tough. So we walk out of the theater, and they follow us out. And Phil and I are going, what the fuck? I mean, (laughs) we got to get back to the hotel. Now, the band, the Paul Williams Orchestra that traveled with us, Bob, they were all black, right, and great musicians. And there was 12 of them, right? And they were all on the tour together. As we're walking down the street with these guys, approaching us aggressively, what comes around the corner but these 12 black dudes in Canada? Well, these guys took off. I don't think they ever seen that many, let alone see the black dude, right? What's up, baby? You need some help there? <laughs> and he and I were just telling story after story after story. He was a great guy, Phil, and they were so talented. You know, people don't realize today, even though they're, they're touching on it, The influence of those guys, and you've written about it, you know, when you sit in that room and I'm in a piano or they're playing guitars and you're hearing, you know, what's going to come out and you're talking about the harmony, what they're doing, look at who they turned on between Buddy and that guitar and the harmonies and all of this to be a part of that and then you land in England and all they're talking about are these guys and they're copping everything from them. You know, we can't ever forget those roots, let me tell you. Can't forget it because it was so natural back then. You know, today, these guys have got the luxury. You can sit around for eight months. You got the technology. You're going to put this in. Great time to grow up. Great time to learn. Great time for me when I watched the Rat Pack, when I started as young Kid, and I'm at the oh, Sands. Oh, well, wait,
3: well, let's, let's hold that for a second. We're going to get holding. to
4: that. You got me hold if I, got, if I could hold it, I wouldn't be married. Go ahead, Bob.
3: <laughs> to what degree on those tours did you see and experience
4: racism? Oh, baby, does the Pope pray? It was when you come out of Canada at my age and not exposed, we're not in a media-driven society, and you travel down south, that's all you saw. These guys were my brothers and sisters on that bus. I got religion real quick, shockingly so, when you pull up to that building for the first time and it goes whites to the left black to the right and you get into the theater itself and that's all segregated and there's police with these dogs and they're going after my brothers on that bus, won't let them eat. I had to go around the corner with the bus with, with all those acts. I'd have to go around into a restaurant and bring the food onto the bus. When we had to go to the bathroom, we weren't allowed We'd slow down to about three miles an hour, open the door, and we would piss out the door. I saw so much back then. It was brutal. It was brutal to watch. And it even reared its ugly head when I started working in Vegas, when they wouldn't let Sammy Davis or Lena Horn when we're at the Sands, and they're living over on the other side of town, talented people, and they wouldn't let them into the goddamn hotel or into the pool And everybody put their foot down and Sinatra led it and said, this ain't going to fly. So from 56 to Vegas and beyond, sir, beyond, sir, it was brutal on me. It was brutal. I'd never witnessed something like that in my life, ever.
3: Okay. You mentioned playing the Copa and the Mob. Yeah. Yeah. Go a little more detail. So at what point did you become aware there was a mob in the music business? And what was your ultimate interaction?
4: The moment I got my feet wet and I had Irv, who was older, experienced, he said, look, Paul, this is the business. Here's who controls it. You're going to hear about mafia. You're going to hear about the mob. They got their hands on the record business. They got their hands on the copa. I want you to wear a shirt and tie. I want you to be polite. And I want you to know, Paul, that you're going to be working for them. They're never going to hurt you. And you're never going to ask them for a favor. But this is who you're going to work for. Irv, the record company, educated me. Now, you have to realize that whole mob scene, mafia, it didn't really hit mass public attention till after 56, 57. It was all under, under, under. You know, I'm living in an apartment around the corner and he gets shot in the barber shop. All of that mafia stuff started to come to its head, 57, 58, 59, and I was aware of it. And that was okay. I would go to work at the COPA. Mr. Podell was a gentleman, shook his hand. I'm always aware of who I'm working for. They were the greatest to work for, Bob. You shook their hand. You didn't need a contract. And I saw stuff from there till I moved from New York to Vegas. You better keep your nose clean because they were for real. And they ran it in and out. You have Mush Levy, Morris Levy, great colorful guy back then, had roulette records. And we all knew what he was doing. And he started what we called write a word, get a third, which means- (laughs) When one of these kids would walk in, Mush would go, uh-uh, you're not going to say, uh, don't. We're going to use the word won't. Okay, Mr. Levy, write a word, get a third. <laughs> so we knew what they were doing, you know, and that was okay. They had trucks coming up to the back door delivering records, blep, 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 blep. You know, we knew we weren't going to get all our money, but that's who you worked for and you were aware of it. Now, it really sunk into me by the time I got to Vegas because- I'm working the sands. Go to it a little bit slower. Sure. You're playing the Copa. Yep. How do you end up in Vegas? Very simple. Meshbucha. They're all connected. They all know each other. The Copa, that was your uh, testing ground. They pick up the phone. They call the guys in Vegas. Jack and Trotter was a waiter at the Copa. He goes out to Vegas. He's running the joint. They all knew each other. If you, well, Let me step back a little bit. Darren, me, Frankie Avalon, we're knee-deep in these careers, but we're hearing, oh, you may not always have a record. You're not always going to have a hit. We don't know if you're going to be around. We're now looking up at these guys. The Rat Pack, Sinatra, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin. Look at the way they dress. Look at how cool they sound. We got to do that. We had no vision beyond that. No vision. There's no Hendrix. There's no Beatles. So we get schooled. We get to tuxedos. We hire these guys that teach us how to do a nightclub act because we got to get to the COPA. I get to the COPA. I open with, the, I think, Jackie Mason was my opening act. <laughs> and, uh, and, well, I'll get off point a little bit. We're a huge hit. First time, kids there. I got Jackie Mason. There are prom kids all the way around Fifth Avenue till three in the morning, and we're doing three shows a day. And Jackie and I were a huge hit. Now, for those that remember the COPA, it was this basement club. Mob ran it. And next door was a hotel called the Hotel 14. You had to go through this Hotel 14 to get into the COPA because there was no dressing room in the basement. So you dressed upstairs and came down through the kitchen. So we finished. We're a huge hit. And Jackie was Jackie back then. And one of the funniest guys. I mean, I've uh, known Known for years, Mary Ress. And you know, he had big balls, and we were a big hit that evening. (laughs) So now we go to work the next night. I go through the entrance. Jackie wants to go through the front door of the Copa. But there's kids lined outside around the corner. And Mr. Podell used to sit there at the table, right at the entrance, with his big ring and chair, time, there. (laughs) <laughs> he was a he was a cool guy. So Jackie walks in and he's passing the kids. And Podell sees him as he's entering into the lounge. And Jackie says, "Oh, Mr. Podell. He says, get back in line, kid. And threw him out. <laughs> he didn't even know who he was. So, so getting back on point. You know, once you work the copa, the word got out. The kid's making money for us. The kid can sing. The kid's an entertainer. This was me, Darren, and Frankie, you know, trying to evolve to where we wanted to go. They make the phone call. You're going to Vegas. Now, Presley didn't work for Elvis, unfortunately, but it did later. Do you want to work uh, the Sands with the Rat Pack? I said, are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. So I go out there and uh, I start and I'm with these guys. Now, the testing ground for me was before I opened at the Sands, they want me to work with Sophie Tucker. America, America's favorite group, (laughs) may she rest. And, uh, they, 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 they bring me out and said, look, you're going to open a show for Sophie Tucker because we want to get a feel for it." Yeah. Whatever you want to do. I opened the show at the Sahara hotel. It was the first time ever they'd ever seen kids coming to a club with their parents. And I'm not talking 20. It was like hundreds of these kids with their parents and I do what I do. And they're screaming. and they're blah, blah, blah. When Sophie came on, they'd leave. But they weren't interested. She was really cool. She said, at the end of the, I think the second night, she says, my boy, I want you to close the show. I can't follow you, my boy. <laughs> I said, "I said, oh, Miss Tucker, whatever. So I closed the show. That led me over to the Sands Hotel with the Rat Pack.
3: Okay. You know, because so much has changed since then. And we know, even at this late date, every entertainer has a deal with a specific casino, although some operations own more than one casino. All of the Rat Pack worked at the Sands?
4: Oh, yeah. Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, Frank Sinatra. Wherever Frank was, that's where you wanted to work. They all worked there. And that's where Irv and I would go. When we weren't working, we would go. And I saw stuff from Kennedy and Monroe and the guys... I got such an education, but it had to be at the Sands Hotel. They owned it. They owned it.
3: What was the education you got? Tell us a couple of things.
4: Well, you certainly learned how to perform, or at least you had a guideline as to the shtick part, um, the concept of the fun that they had, getting the understanding that you'd better take those vocal lessons because those cats are singing for real. There's no technology making you sound better. Didn't exist. Only Fabian, and I'll deviate quickly, who they found in Philly, part of the Frankie Avalon, that whole group. Nice kid, great looking, because that's what they were selling back then. You know, aesthetics. Unfortunately, the Americans have sent that all over the world to where it's a priority when it shouldn't be. But anyway, just with Fabian... When he recorded, there was a hundred splices on the song. They took a razor blade, they put the tape, and they cut it in a hundred pieces just to get a vocal. So what I'm saying to you is, you have to have a vocal coach and you have to be as good as they were professionally in being able to stay in tune and to sing the kind of arrangements. Uh, The whole ambiance was magical. There was nothing like it. There was nothing like it. You're on a bus in this broken-down stadium, and all of a sudden you're in these great nightclubs. Then when you started meeting these guys and you started getting the input when they liked you and you saw the 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 behind-the-scenes stuff, I mean, right down to when we'd all meet in the steam room at the Sands Hotel at 1 in the morning in a town that had 280 showgirls who all wanted to be in there, that's an opera, and whoever was in there shared in the enjoyment, right? So all that, I mean, by four in the morning, we were getting haircuts by Jay Sebring, who was the hot guy. He'd fly up from LA. We're all sitting on the lawn getting haircuts. The girls are waiting inside. And I'm looking at these guys that I idol, saying, say, what a life, right? So it was all of that. And it was all of, you know, structuring yourself, as to be as good as you possibly could be in the professionalism that was in that town and that's all that that was that was that was the entertainment town every lounge every place the top people in the business were there
3: okay there are, in show business everybody knows everybody but they're not necessarily friends no you're adopted by the rat pack you're you know a member yourself why you what does that happen and in addition this was an era with very little Publicity, very little story, unlike today.
4: Yeah. Well,
3: yes. Was the, re- was the reality as good as the image is my question?
4: Yes. 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 Look, we're all working for the same group. They're all a part of the success, Sammy, Frank, Dean. Did I profess to know all of them well early in the game? No. Do I profess to say that I knew Dean Martin, who was very much a loner? No, I was there. Respect. Sammy got to know well. Frank, I got to know well. But the point was, there was uh, there was this thing of, well, if you're working here with us and we like what you're doing, the gravitas that I brought to the table, if you will, that they were aware of, unlike the others, I was a writer. So the time you write the longest day, the Tonight Show theme, you've got this different kind of respect to, well, maybe this kid's going to last. And the reviews of me as a performer started to embellish, embellish. We need him here because Carl Cohen was my godfather. Carl Cohen ran the joint for the guys, as did about six of them. The word got out, we're going to nurture the kid. He's making money for us. At the Copa, where I spent years. Look, ultimately, you learn all of us early. You know what the whole thing about in this world is? All about the money. Don't give me its principle, all that bullshit. Everything today as it was yesterday, it's all about the money. Okay? And you learned that early. And those guys, I was a money machine. I'm selling millions of records. I'm working their clubs. There was no one else. You know, I think Frankie Avalon came in a few years later. They needed to protect us. We belonged to them. Now, belonged. We made money. They never put the muscle on me. So Frank would be always there for me. Every time I met him for dinner, he'd talk to me, trying to teach me and say and do. You know, he wasn't an educated man in that sense. He was educated because he read a lot and wanted to be. But he would take care. He was the greatest guy and the greatest friend you could ever have. And if he didn't like you, that's a whole other story. (laughs) But they protected you, okay? And, you know, there was an incident. I mean, it even hurts me to talk about it because Sinatra can do no wrong for me. I mean, he, 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 and even Sammy, those guys were something else for me. But I was there the night that when Howard Hughes took the place over. You know, you hear that you hear everything. I'd sit with Jimmy Roselli after my show. Hey, kid, you know we love you and keep your nose clean in this. And then he winds up in a oil can. I'm going, what the? You start hearing all of this stuff. You see, getting, you get the background as to why, and. I realized that if I didn't keep my nose clean, I wasn't going to really have any kind of career after that. And that's where I put the cards on the table with those guys. Okay, you have the success
3: very quickly. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable in it, or do you have a certain amount of imposter syndrome?
4: I'm very comfortable. Very comfortable from day one. You feel you belong, you're an equal. I never felt so comfortable. Well, an equal. I wasn't an equal to the rap night. I was in the business. I was a singer, an entertainer, and I was always comfortable. I was not intimidated by them. Now, you're in awe of them, but I always felt comfortable. I felt I belonged. I, uh, I learned quick. Uh, I was very aggressive in where I wanted to go. You know, I, I, I took $250,000 pretty much all I had after I bought my parents a home, I gave it to the record company. I wanted out because I'd go to Europe and it's all down to what it is was today, is today, distribution. My record company wasn't there. Go to these little towns. I'd say, RCA Victor, RCA Victor, uh, washing machines, toasters, RCA Victor. So I said to Irv, you got to be with these guys because I'm going international and they're in every store I go to and I don't see any ABC Paramount. So I gave it back. I gave him 250000 I bought all my rights back, and I got very aggressive, started a company, and started making records for RCA Victor. And I said to I want to go back to Italy because I loved it. I was singing there for years. And I signed with uh, R.C. Italiana, and I started writing with the Italians. And my A&R, my A&R director was Ino Morricone, who, as you know, became of the guy. But he was my guy. We sold 4 million records when I was there. First time ever, they'd had a million seller in Italy. I went to France, started singing in French. I did it in German. I did it in France. So I got aggressive in terms of where my home would be, and it was RCA Victor. And that changed my life, and I rode right through that until I wrote my way in the mid-'60s. Okay. Tell us the story of you and Annette. (laughs) You look so (laughs) interested. Did you like her well? No, fan? no, she <laughs> was America's sweetheart. sweetheart. Literally. I know, but you liked her, right? Were you a fan of her? Everybody liked her. She was the queen. Yeah. Squeaky clean. You no, know, she was squeaky, all right. So we're touring. And Annette, she's on, as you know, the whole Disney thing. And Ur says, we're taking this girl, Annette, on the road. Okay, And I get to know her on the road. We all liked her, obviously. So I'm working it. I'm working it. I got this crush. It's no more I'm so young and you're so old. So we start swapping spit with all due respect. Good family. The mother's out there traveling with us. She's got teachers. Disney protected. And we get close. We get real close. I'm out at the home in Encino. We're spending a lot of time. Um, Disney said, could you write an album for her? You know, write some songs? Absolutely. I do the album. We're getting very serious. Uh, Disney's now getting hot under the collar with, we don't want this kind of image. You know, there's nothing happening there. It's puppy love. Ah, puppy love. And they call. <laughs> so I get a song out of her. I write some songs for her. We had a great relationship. She was probably the first to hear put your head in my shoulder because I was playing her everything. I'd go to her house and then see, you know, the, these fans, they gave her bears. There must have been 200 teddy bears and things. We'd lay on these bears and sit and talk all night at her home over there. I realized that she did, even though she wanted to get married, that that was not going to happen. You know, because when you look historically now, and that I know I made the right decision, whether you're an athlete, a singer, Whatever, when a woman comes into your life and you're very successful and focused, and I want to be careful here, your eye can get off the ball and you lose a lot of momentum because obviously you're over here. So I was, my eye was off the ball. I was so wrapped up and in love and I was too young. And we talked it out and said, look, let's just be friends. Fade out, fade in. My agent, Jack Gillardi married her. Okay, so. <laughs> That's all I'm going to tell you. Yeah, <laughs> I realize I'm not going to dig any deeper.
3: Tell me how you write the Tonight Show theme.
4: I'm in England doing a Granada TV special. And they want two hours, I think. And I said, It's a lot of music. It needs some relief here. Can we have some comedy? Now, back then, I started with two guys called Lou and Leslie Grade, who later became. Lou Grade. Sir Lou Grade. But when I met them, they had a little office. They met me at the airport. Lou shows up with the cigar. He takes me to his little office. I'm sitting with his brother. We want you to do this Granada show because it'll help you with blah, blah, blah. He says, we got a band for you. Well, come on. They take me to this little club. And I see these eight guys up there in pink suits, yellow suits, gray suits. John Barry. John Barry 7, trumpet player. Becomes my band. And they say, we're going to do this Granada TV show. He said, great, guys. And they were my bookers. They booked me all over Europe. I said, can we get some comedy? So they send me these kinescopes. And I'm sitting there all day watching comics. This one guy drank all night. He was absolutely blitzed by 3 in the morning. Goes to bed, but he had to get up the next day at 8 in the morning and host a kiddie show, a bunch of screaming kids. <laughs> Johnny Carson. I said, that's funny. So I said, yeah, bring him over. So Johnny comes over, got to know him a little. You know, Johnny... No one really got to know Johnny well. He was brilliant in what he did, but he was, it was nice enough. It was the beginning of his career. Okay. Does his job. We do it. I fly home. He flies home. I had an office on 57th street and I see Johnny coming out of this building where I had my office. Hey Johnny, how you doing? Hey, fine, bro. What are you up to, John? Well, you know, I'm doing this and looking. He said, I may take over this, uh, tonight show. I might do it for like two years. Ha ha ha. So two years, right? I said, okay. He says, you know, I'd like to have like a theme song, you know, for me. You know, I said, yeah, sure. Now I'd had this melody tweaked around. I was giving it to a net. There might even have been a thing. He says, I only need 15 seconds. So uh, again, I take about 400 bucks out of my bank account. I go with the band, take my vision. I put down, da, 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 da. And I give it to him. He said, that's great. So he takes it. Calls me back two days later, I think. He says, Paul, I'm sorry, but I can't use it. I said, Why? He said, Well, there's a guy that's already been on the show, Skitch Henderson, you know, and he's 60s and big attitude. And yeah, and says, I'd seen him. He said, But he doesn't want any kid writing anything. He doesn't want to do it. I said, Oh, Jesus, John. He says, John, let me ask you a question. If I gave you half of the writer's royalty and half the publishing, would that make a difference? <laughs> he said, let me get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the rest of the story, right? Right. It's not two years. It turns into 39. And he makes a shitload of money, as I did. And that's The Tonight Show. How much money do you think you made
3: over the life of The Tonight Show from the theme song?
4: Gee, Bob, you know, I, I should have got it. Well, I know that it made so much that NBC stopped the, um, the, the payments in terms of they put a new infrastructure as to how much it could make. So my guess, my guess, 39 years, $15 million, $10 million. And you had no idea this was going to be the cash cow that it was. Nobody did. He did. He, he was out of there in two years. That was the contract. I didn't even think about it. You know, there's so much, you know, there's so much that in our industry, you can sit back and envision what it's going to be. And there's so much you don't even see coming. You know, if that's what's, that's what's great about our business, you know, because I first learned you do something that's going to make them come back whether you're a songwriter, performer, and then don't sit and listen to the last person that tells you what to do and think negative because you don't know. And William Goldman put that great quote, nobody knows, what he's talking about here. And it's so true in our business today. You look at what we're experiencing today, and unfortunately, when I look at the economics, what's happening, I don't know that half of these people are even going to be in business next year. You know, labels are not friendly anymore, artists. I don't want to say they're the enemy, but here's guys, and you know, guys like Lucian who are smart, first Brit to make it. These guys five years ago were making, let's say 280 million, Sony. They're both doing, three of them, are all doing a billion dollars today. And without artists, you know, they're not sitting there nurturing and working with new people, et cetera, et cetera. Now we know where they have to go to make it. You've written all about it, but it's so true. You're no longer part of, the record company business, an artist. You know, they sit, and you got the whole Spotify thing. Press the button. So the point is, it's such a new business. Nobody saw this coming, nor would they see. I want to see what's going to happen. You know, I I worked probably my 10th year in the business. Every 10 years or so, something new comes along. The Beatles came along. Then this came along. Then Michael Jackson, you know, which is a whole other story with my life with him. And you know that something's coming in five years. What's that going to be? What is the new form going to be? Who's going to be around? As I said, my fear today, if you're a young lawyer, if you're an agent, let's forget about Bruno Mars and Weekend and the the Echelon that are going to be fine. What's going to happen to all that mid-core agents, lawyers, artists? You're going to see some fire sales. If things don't pick up, Bob, a lot in jeopardy here. A lot in jeopardy. Okay, just going back. You have this
3: enormous success and then style changes. How do you deal with this and how do you maintain your relevancy decade after decade after decade?
4: You're building on a solid foundation. That's how how I started. I said, look, I'm going to stay true to what I do could I become a heavy rock artist? Yeah, yeah, I can play guitar. I stayed true to who I was, where I felt comfortable on a solid foundation. And I kept changing within that structure with whatever was happening around me. But the the criteria of it all was stay the writer. That's where you're going to get the attention and the respect, stay the writer. So I stayed true to writing, gave stuff away. I worked at my craft as a performer and I just tried to stay with what was happening, but keeping my own identity to it. Not easy, not easy. You know, when you get to having my baby and all of that stuff, not that easy. Okay. So you had my way, but if you just I used to talk to Darren about it when he took the guitar and the jean jacket. You know, we'd sit around. He was a good friend. See, Bobby, why are you, why are you doing the Dylan thing? It, you, you can do it, but it's not as good as what you did and who you are. Why are you doing this? But he was very politically and tied in. I said, just stay true to who you are, and our guys will follow us. Our crowd will follow us. I don't know that I'd be around, Bob, if I wasn't the writer. I don't know. I really, you know, till I. I always stayed as the writer first and then a the performer. You know, I wrote it right through the stuff with Jackson, working with Bublé, always staying with no rear view mirror, staying relevant as you could today, the moment, the moment.
3: You've been married three times.
4: Yes. You're not a monk.
3: <laughs> what, have you, what have you learned about love and relationships?
4: You never learn. <laughs> okay, what did I learn? Well, my first wife, Anne, may she rest, 39 years. Uh, five uh, great children, nine grandchildren. And it was a beautiful time in my life. Uh, we lost her to cancer. Um, I went on to marry twice after. Uh, the first one of the second, it. I had a child with. I wasn't planning on getting married, and I wasn't planning on having a child. Well, as things evolved and I took care of business, I was a gentleman through it all, I fell in love with this boy, my first boy. And at the same time, I just knew that there would be no future in terms of the concept of marriage, okay? It's a tough business. It really is a tough business for everybody. I'm a numbers guy. And when you look at the numbers, 50% are divorced. Of the other 50%, 50% are miserable. So that has never changed as I've looked at life and looked at guys and all my buddies who are miserable. And I wish them happiness. But I realized that, you know, you get to a certain point with a woman and they need to get married. Well, if you get married for whatever reasons and you protect yourself, uh, I no longer look at it as a necessity for me to be married. I'm very... I'm very happy the way I am. I've got a great woman in my life. I've got my son. Uh, I, I fought, in a sense, getting married the last two. Uh, probably won't get married again. Um, you know, you don't know your wife, Bob, till you meet her in court. <laughs> I've definitely learned that. So, and you're never going to beat it. Because God bless him. Look, if you read Freud on his dying bed, and they said to him, you know, Sigmund, of all the great things you've done and you've achieved in the human mind, is there something you couldn't figure out? And if you read the book, he said, I can't figure what a woman wanted. Could never figure out what a woman wanted. And I'm not slamming women. I love them. We all love them. It's it's just, if it isn't working and if it isn't fitting and if you don't have a friend and then it's, it's, it's senseless. You know, there was a great study at Harvard. They took these 100 guys from the age of 20 on. And we're going to follow you through your life. And when we get into your 70s, your 80s, we're going to come back and see you guys, which they did. And they sat with all of them, billionaire, millionaire, pivoter, pivoter, And they said, what have you learned through all of this? What is it you want now, right now, with everything you've achieved in your life? All of them. We only want now someone that we can live with that cares for us. We want someone that cares. How true. You know, men, we're not complicated. We're not easy to live with. Obviously not. But if you don't have that right fit, then you're going to be married three times, which I was, you know. And you know what it is? It's a date gone wrong because I wasn't married that long in either one. I, I knew what was happening. But it just wasn't working. wasn't working. I guess I I gave my all to my first wife, who's an amazing woman, uh, loved her dearly, and such a great mother. And um, I had my taste of it. You know, I've been with the best of the guys, the Sinatras, the Ali Khans, the guys I know in Europe, all these great stockers who really know about this. None of them were successful. So maybe it's like the flu. You're going to get it every year. you got to fight it. You get rid of it. I can't tell you that I could give you any wisdom there. I've just not. Okay, how about the
3: fact you are a uh, a road guy. All performers are. Yeah. Can you keep a relationship going if you're on the road a lot
4: and what is the key there? Anyone that travels. you in a restaurant, you travel. Anybody, very difficult. Very difficult. Now you're down to Quality of time and not quantity of time. So when you come home, the quality you put in, because it's just very tough on both parties as you're growing. What is the secret? The woman in your life, not the guy, the woman. If she's adjusting and still feels that love and understands the guy, you got a chance of making it. Because if you're not giving, and if you're not there for in all the needs or some of the needs that they need, it's so tough. Because, you know, the only t- only way I looked at it was, and I said to my wife, may she rest, I said, this is what I do since 15 years old. Do you sure you want to be a part of this? Yeah, you sure. And I would take her and I would take the kids. And I found a friend who understood. Guys just want a friend first that totally gets us. Because it ain't easy. It's, a nun, it's an unnatural state. It was created for the nomadic race. The nomadic race, they lived to what? 29, 32, <laughs> whatever it was. It wasn't created for today. You know, people go to me, hey, Paul, we missed uh, the old days. It was so simple back then. I said, no, 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 no. The times weren't simple. You were simple. I was simple. Because you know where you are today? you got a lot of brilliant, smart people now. And I say to them, don't give me this bullshit about, oh, yesterday, is I, if nothing's like yesterday, forget yesterday. You need to live in this moment now where all the intelligence is, get with it. Don't be judgmental about it. Whether you're marrying, you're dating, you're working, this is it, baby. The train's coming down the track. Step aside. Smart people today. Smart stuff happening today. And they're being smart. Kids today, oh, I'm not getting married. Oh, in too much trouble. I'm not, I'm going to wait till I'm thirty. They get it. These kids, you know, as much as they think they've got the answer, some of them do, right? So, how are you ever going to figure out what you're going to do if you're living with someone, whether you're married together? Give it your best shot. Give it your best shot. You'll know. You'll know, and you won't know. No, it's just what it is. Okay,
3: you mentioned Michael Jackson. Yeah. Tell me about your interaction with him and what he was really like.
4: Michael, I knew him and his family when they'd come to Vegas. They'd see me, Frank, you know I mean? Joe, drove that whole family. Show business, show business, show business. Nice family, you know, talented. But we all kind of sensed in the record business and the business itself that Michael had that, it thing. We just saw it. When I was doing my album for Sony, Duets album, and I had everyone, Michael McDonald, Kenny Love, great writers, all kinds of people, real proud of that album. Michael wanted to be on the album, wanted to do two songs with me. So he came to see me in Carmel at a home, at a studio, and we'd sit, we spent weeks up there in my guest house, we'd sit and talk to business. He was a sponge. He just You couldn't tell this kid enough, right? He was so into it. In the interim, Thriller is about to come out and explode, right? But I'm in the middle of this project, and he's my last artist. We sit down, we start writing, and I get the core of the songs done and the the rhythm, piano, some drum, but I get the core of where it has to go. I shipped the tapes to uh, Los Angeles because I got—I I couldn't house a big band at my home. And I'm going to fly down and work with Michael and finish the songs in Los Angeles. I get a call uh, from the record studio in Los Angeles. Uh, Mr. Anchor, Michael Jackson, one of his people came over and they took the tapes out of the studio. We told them we couldn't release them, but they took them. I said, What? He took the tapes. It's not going to be recording. Oh, so now I fly down from Carmel and I go to my lawyers at the time, uh, who remain nameless, even though it's out there. And they were Michaels. They just, I think they just took Michael on. And then my contract was done between all of us because we're at the same firm. And I had a contract. So I went up, hey, John. And, uh, uh, What's going on? The kid t- t- took my tapes. I got to deliver to Sony. I'm gonna do- well, you know, Paul, he's a uh, thriller's now taken off and you know, he he wants to, and they give me all this bullshit rhetoric about what he wants to. Oh, what am I going to do? I got Sony, I got to finish and he's breached his contract and this is not nice. This is just not nice. You just don't do this. I know. And I said, look at the contract. He's, he says to me, John says, what well, was in file 37 but we can't find it I said what <laughs> so I convened with with my brain group and I said look I'm not litigious but you got to assume I want my goddamn tapes back so I leave this office I was with and um, they returned the tapes okay I'm stuck so I don't know what I put in there I don't know who it was Fade out, fade in, years later, um, I get a call from uh, uh, Harvey Levin, good old Harvey. There's a song out with uh, Michael Jackson uh, about the uh, name of the tour, This Is It. But word is that, uh, you know, they found these tapes at his house, but somebody said, you wrote it. I said, Harvey, uh, I didn't write anything called This Is It. I said, send it to me. So he sends it to me. Well, the original title, Bob, was I Never Heard. I Never Heard a Sing. But what they did, they took the first line of the song, This Is It, Here I Stand, and they put called the tour, This Is It, they called the puppet, they got the plumber, they got everything's This Is It. And I go, Yeah, that's the song. He said, What are you going to do? I said, Well, this is going to be fun because they already (laughs) screwed me the first time, right? So I call up these. These lawyers, these guys, right? And I said, okay, this could be real short, okay? We're going to fix this fast. We got a deadline. I said, you know what? Respect for Michael and the put, putting behind what you did. I want 50% of everything. And if we're not done by the end of the day, it's over. Well, we got what we wanted, right? And uh, somebody in his company called me, nice gentleman. And he said, uh, thank you so much uh, for s- helping us solve this. You know, we found these in the drawer and, you know, we don't, uh, we didn't know. Oh, all right. He said, and I found all this stuff. He says, hey, listen to this one. This is really a good one. I go, oh, yeah, well, play it to me, John. He plays it. I said, I wrote that too. Love never felt so good, right? He said, you did. I said, don't worry. Same terms. <laughs> so, uh, So that was the story. Uh, karma I guess right uh, there were his last records The, I guess the the cherry on the top word got out to Drake that there was one more song left okay I get the call we go through all the stuff he says can I come over to your house so he comes over to my house over here where I live in Lake Sherwood and we meet well, the experience is new first I, I respect the guy he's from Toronto I get what it is but you're not sitting around a piano. You're sitting around a computer. You know, I'm the I'm guy that sits with guys with guitars, pianos, and we're talking technical now. So I said, look, here's the song, Don't Matter to Me. It's what I've done here. I said, you take it and put your genius on it with your tech guys, and let's see if we can break the code. And if we do and we like it, then come out. He takes it, got good guys around him. They finish their half. We piece it together. And we have the last Michael Jackson hit with It Don't Matter to Me on The Scorpion. So the point of it is, with all the bad, bad, and what they did to me back then, when I was really not happy with it, it all came around, Bob. It all came around. Well, speaking of that,
3: the music business is a crook business, even at this late date. So you started out in the real Wild West, as we say, and- I need to know, you know, your parents were not sophisticated. You had to have signed a lot of bad deals. So, what did you end up owning? What did you end up getting paid? What went on with the money?
4: Another great question. I got screwed left and right. Uh, Irv and I got screwed left and right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two, two cents, uh, uh, the soap. Uh, 100,000 copies that sold 500,000 copies. Uh, Europe, it's number one. They got a black box. Everywhere you turn, you're getting screwed, okay? I made some money. You know, I still when I started performing and the royalties are coming in, uh, look, for a kid that had nothing and grew up in a home, real humble and modest, and you're looking at checks coming in from BMI for 100,000 I trusted them more than I trusted the record companies. You're working for promoters. Money is going every which way, every which way. They're always going to screw you. It's not It's not unlike the motion picture business with the voodoo economics. Come on. It's never changed. Yeah, I got screwed left and right back then, but grateful. Made some nice investments. But we were always chasing somebody, always trying to get... Even today, you know, come on. We know what the injuries, what it is today. Same bullshit, more lights. That's all. You know, you, you, you look at the promotion business, the touring business. Years ago, you know, I've worked Vegas consistently. I've worked there right through every regime, right through the Howard Hughes, with the boys, Steve Wynn, all of that. Everybody, oh, he's got a Vegas stigma. Oh, him and Wayne Newton. That town, oh, we won't go near there. Oh. Today, they go on the road to outdo each other. They come home with maybe 10%. All of a sudden, somebody decides, you know, and I I knew Renee and Celine, their fellow Canadians – well, we can make more money there because they're going to pay for this and they're going to pay for that. Oh, eight million! Oh, what a beautiful place this is! Then Elton comes in. Everybody's going to Vegas. Why? It's all about the money. But when I started, you know, all of us, the Everlys, and us, we we made some money. We made, you know My first big date was ten thousand dollars at Freedomland. For the Zeckendorfs. I've been to Freedom Land, <laughs> right? So now I'll never forget this. They send the contract to to the GAC, the agency. The guy said, "No, no, 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 this is not possible." And instead of ten thousand, he made it out for like a <laughs> thousand, and her almost killed him. He said, "What are you?" That was my first big money date. because when I was working to Copa or I was working Vegas, it's making fifteen thousand a week. Ultimately. But I was doing two shows a night, six weeks in a row. And if you didn't like it, the boy said, out, right? But it, you're always chasing money. You're always getting screwed left and right. And it's, look, unfortunately, a lot of money around today. Some big numbers out there, Bob, with the managers and a lot of these acts and what they're making. I wouldn't complain if I were them. This is real money. They're printing money today, right? Right? And our concern is, what's it going to be next year if things don't get straightened out?
3: Okay, so who owns your songs and your records today?
4: I bought my catalog and my stuff for $250,000 years ago. I owned it. Uh, Both the songs and the records? The records and the publishing. That's correct. Okay. Uh, I had sold them portion of to... Uh, a company back in the 70s. But since I started so young, 50 years is over, it's terminating. So I'm getting stuff back, okay? But the record side of it, I've always owned it. So I was able today, in answer to your question, make a deal with Primary Wave and with Larry Mistel and his group and happy to do so. Because what they can do, and that's why everybody, you know, you've written about it, Dylan, whoever, the multiples are crazy. The multiples are crazy. Everybody's selling, and I get it. It's so smart. It's so smart. I think. Forget about everything else. Get that money today, because you've got families and kids fighting over it. If you're not in cash flow in today's world, you've got problems. Get it and enjoy it, and just enjoy it. So I made a deal with Larry. We're partners. And I'm happy to be there. I'm absolutely happy to be there. Okay. Is he, did you sell him 50 or a hundred? 50. It's my partner. Didn't want to sell it all. I want to be in the game. I want to be in the game for my son. I want to be in the game for me because TikTok, who saw this coming? Put your head on my shoulder now is like from this TikTok, which I'm, I know you're an aware guy. I can't believe it. They know what to do with all of that. I don't have offices and people and all. I sit back and wait for a phone call, but they know what to do. They're smart and that's their game and they're in it. They're only going to help me more than I could have helped myself. Okay. So at this late date,
3: you've stayed in the game for 60 plus years and that's an achievement. Literally almost nobody has. So, are you running on fumes or are there still some <laughs> goals you want to accomplish in the time you have left?
4: <laughs> I'd rather you tell me about the time I have left. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of PR for the album lately. Uh, you know what I tell them? When some guy comes up to me, says, you know, I'm thinking of retiring. I say to them, you already have. You already have. I don't know what that number thing is, Bob. You know, I know about my energy. I know that my number one job for the last year and a half has been my health, my health. Cause we're all living this life lottery. Every one of us. It's a life lottery. It is so crazy out there. I just keep going. They throw dirt on you if you stand still. I just have to keep going, staying healthy, dealing with the energy goals. What goals? I want to get, I want to get the doc done. I want to roll it into Broadway. And then I don't care. I'm playing with the house's money, and it's good for me. I make more money now, touring. I'm humbly submitting than I ever did. I play in these stadiums and casinos. I'm doing these theaters. I'm going to Israel. I'm going to Italy. I'm going to France. I'm selling out. What schmuck would walk away from that? Who, you know what? What do you, I've watched guys sit there? Sinatra, who I adore, and then and Tony, God bless him. They paint, okay, and then some, they got trains and they got flowers. Enough already. After you've watched television and after you've read all the books you're going to read, I see smart guys die. I don't want to be that because it's not in my gene to do that. So when you say goals, I don't have the same goals I had years ago. No, 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 no. I don't have those goals. I'm going to keep doing what Anka does. My audience is there. I'm going to keep doing it. And I'm not gonna base my money just, my life on just money. And I'm gonna play how I can in this whole scene. I don't look at, you know, I don't look at anyone around me or anything in life as anyone beneath me. I've never, ever done that. No one is beneath us. You get these artists today who are way out there, ain't gonna ever work. So I don't have any goals left. I have a goal when I read all these medical journals, I read all this stuff. I'm gonna make a hundred if I can. You know, you look at the new stats where these kids born after 2000, they know they'll live till 115. You and I at our age, the way medicine is going, it ain't easy to die, Bob. It just ain't easy. So I'm going to keep healthy. And you know, what's kept me young is keeping myself together to know I got to go on that stage and be straight and be coherent and remember the lyrics. That helps me do what I do. So the goals are gone. You know, the goals are gone. I've written the book. We did fine. I want to get this doc done, and then I want to keep going on that stage, just like Tony did. Okay, maybe it's two years too long. God bless him. Maybe Frank stayed a little. But I know, because I've spoken with him, they want to die on the stage. They love it. They love it, and it's good to us. It's so good to us. Well Paul, you're
3: quite an amazing raconteur. tour. This is this, this has been wonderful and we really have only scratched the surface. I hope so. But I think we've come to the end of the feeling we've known on this particular podcast. <laughs> so, this has really been wonderful and it's amazing to me that you're, you know, the way we used to say, you know, you're hip to what's going on. Yeah. That has a negative connotation 40 years ago. People don't really say hip anymore. But you are. Uh, i'm astounded. you're just not dropping names you know what's going on it's very impressive so
4: thanks so much for spending the time hey bob listen you keep doing what you're doing man because look at that lyric again and you'll know when you wrote that column and i'll send it to you thank you okay because my dad when i left home said never be the smartest guy in the room never be nice and don't trust but never be smart What you do for us, your followers and your fans, no one has the balls to say and write about. And I learned from guys like you. I learned from guys. like, And I'm not kissing your ass because I don't have to because you know it and the industry knows it. Don't you stop. And you live and breathe it, right? Whether you're on vacation. Oh, I'll never stop. People talk about retirement. Retirement is death. Death. Why would
3: I want to retire?
4: I know it and you know it. You got And it. in
3: terms of writing, yeah, we don't write the same kind of stuff, but it's the same thing. If I don't write for a couple of days, I start to fall apart. I said, I gotta write
4: something. Yep. I got something, to, you know, that's the game I'm in. That is the game, and you're winning at it. That's the name of it. Bob, thank you so much. Listen, Paul, this has been great.
3: Till next time. This is Bob Lefsex.